The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. My room wasn't large enough to include a desk in, so I had to put my desk in the living room. One of my other roommates was able to put a desk in his bedroom, but the third roommate was in the living room with me, and we had to sort of take turns scheduling calls. I was fortunate enough to have started at the firm, so I had those relationships with my colleagues. Yeah, I've understood the ways to get things done. I have some colleagues, they started after COVID began. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to yet another wonderful podcast, and I'm happy to be hosting this week. So today, I'd love for you all to take a second and think back to the days that you started your career, right? So maybe you walked into that grand foyer at the law firm or a corporation or government agency, whatever the case was, you met with your boss, you sat down at your desk and your monitor and your keyboard, and then you were introduced to everyone by walking around from one location to the next location. It was a really cool thing, right? So it was a little intimidating, it's always overwhelming, but it was one of those things that we all sort of can feel and think back to. Now, I ask you, to throw another layer on top of that, that you're starting a new job during the pandemic. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And then for those of you in London, Sydney, Paris, or maybe even Tokyo, hello, I might, bonjour, konnichiwa. <laughs> Sorry, a little silly there. But for those of you in those cities with huge towers that sometimes people live in when you're starting off, and maybe you have multiple roommates, Throw that layer on top. What does that feel like, right? So you maybe you're interacting with your clients uh, from working from home. That's yet another dynamic that we all have to think about. So today, we are very lucky to have Kareem Sabadeen, who's an associate at Thompson Hine, and he focuses in on business litigation and white collar criminal practice, as well as international uh, investigations and internal investigations and some government enforcement. So what's really cool about this is not only do, do we get to hear about the struggles and maybe sometimes the challenges that a young professional might have in this space, but we also get to hear more about what his unique profile has been. What he's gone through, which is actually very unusual in the United States from many vantage points, whereas his undergrad or uh, university, as well as his law school experience, was a mixture of both classroom learning as well as co-op or shall we say internships. And he's got a lot of really neat experiences from um, the nonprofits to the government agencies, to the corporations, all of these start to come together. And you could see how it forms in his head a path forward as he started working more in this white collar criminal practice. All of this is serving as background for us to get a better understanding of how things are moving forward, for the, the young attorneys, lawyers of the world, and how they're handling the pandemic. I'm really excited to have Kareem today. Now let's get started. The Hearing. Kareem, hey, thank you so much for joining the hearing today. We're really looking forward to the conversation. So thanks for joining. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's good to, it's good to talk again. I'm really looking forward to it. So it's funny, I was thinking about it and it's been over a year, probably 14 months, I think, since we last spoke. And uh, I then started thinking about, all right, what, what's happened over the last 
12 to 14 months and I started thinking about, okay, so we have Brexit, you know, that actually happened. And then we had uh, Mexit or Megxit, sorry, uh, where Meghan and Harry sought their own independence. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Ireland determines that uh, Subway bread isn't actually bread. It's uh, there's too much sugar in there. Um, sadly, Australia had massive bushfires followed by California and the West Coast uh, out here. Another quick unfortunate circumstance um, tragedy was um, Kobe Bryant and fellow passengers perished in that helicopter. Uh, weird ones. How about uh, the U.S. Defense Department sharing a bona fide Uf UFO videos, which is bonkers to think about. Um, different parts of the world, including the United States, had murder hornets invading. Uh, President Trump was impeached twice now. Um, a few more, just for context, to see how much has changed. Uh, the Tiger King flourished on Netflix. And then we had Carol Baskin, who was a contestant on Dancing with the Stars. Another bizarre one. Um, one of the last ones that, again, is striking for me, uh, Macaulay Culkin turned 40 years old. The guy from Home Alone. Um, and then, of course, sadly, we have been encountering uh, COVID-19 for over the last... 12, or I should say 8, 9, 12 months, yeah, depending on where you are in the world. So, how was your year? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, a few of those actually, and I did not know about the murder hornets. Um, so that's, was, that's news to me, but, uh, you know, stuff. I think very scary stuff. Um, you know, I, I share, I share your sentiment over the last year. It's been a very interesting and, you know, not a very good year for a lot of people, you know, in this in, the, in this country and around the world, um, I will. I think the last uh, last time we spoke, I was just about to leave my previous firm and starting at the current firm I'm at now. And you know, the work has been wonderful. Um, you know, things slowed down definitely right around April. But I guess I'll try to I'll try to follow your same trajectory in terms of going through it. Um, January was fine. February was fine. Very busy. Uh, lots of work. March, things got, you know, New York, COVID really started to affect people, um, even a little bit earlier than March. Uh, it was interesting to see how people reacted here. I mean, I, this may be a little bit dramatic, but my roommates and I, um, you know, started preparing to lock ourselves indoors for a while. We lived in a, uh, we lived in a, at the time we lived in a 40 story building and we would get daily emails um, saying this floor has experienced a COVID outbreak. This floor has experienced a COVID outbreak, just waiting for our floor to eventually get that email, which it did. Um, and, you know, we, no one really knew how, you know, how to go about handling this. You know, we took all the precautions, we stayed inside, then it got worse and worse. And then there was sort of an uptick where it got better and then it got worse again. Um, you know, on top of all the other political activities that have been happening in this country, it's been a very, very strange year. Um, you know, my family is in Lebanon and they have not, you know, the, the crisis there has not been handled well. They just went into another lockdown, I think as of yesterday for 10 days, um, where you know my mom tried to go to the grocery store yesterday, it's completely sold out. And now there's fines for being out on the street. Um, so they have locked themselves inside for at least the next 10 days, hoping to somewhat control the virus there. 
but it's uh, and that's just one example. You know, that England has had a significant amount of uptick, and you know, countries around the world are finding their own way of dealing with these things. New York, you know, for the most part, we're on the forefront, um, and we've been able to adapt, you know, well and thought out procedures. But again, it's been uh, you know, some people haven't been as fortunate. No, I think, I mean, you're, you're right on about all of that. I and mean, there are so many things uh, that were going on. And, and this obviously is one of the biggest. Um, I mean, I failed to mention George Floyd uh, earlier. And I think that's definitely important to mention as well. Uh, it's, it's been remarkable to see um, how things have, have changed in, in terms of how people who have traditionally not um, worked remotely, uh, started to to wrap their arms around what's going on for them professionally. How has that changed for you? I mean, I know you transitioned from one firm to another. Uh, what was that like? Did that happen during this time or was that just before? So it's very interesting. It happened just before. I transitioned in November um, and then I joined the firm. Uh, sorry, transitioned in November and then COVID, you know, I started working from home. I believe it was right around March 14th. I believe it was right. It was right before my birthday on March twenty, March twenty second. That's how I have I have that that there to remind me when it all started. But it, I guess it really, you know, for me, it affected me very differently than it would other people in other parts of the country. In New York, and I'm sure you know, in Washington D.C., it's the same thing. We don't have large houses. You know, we live. Most of the people that live in Manhattan or you know the surrounding boroughs um, live in. Smaller, smaller apartments, and we and we have roommates, at least for people who are my age. Um, so finding, you know, and then I have I had two other roommates at the time, and suddenly we're all working from home, and you know we're all on conference calls all day. We all have we all have busy, demanding professions, and that was a huge adjustment. Uh, my room wasn't small, it wasn't large enough to include a desk in, so I had to put my desk in the living room. Um, one of my other roommates was able to put a desk in his bedroom. But for a short period of time, the third roommate uh, was in the living room with me and we had to sort of take turns scheduling calls or someone going into their bedroom to take a call. So that was a huge adjustment for us on top of, you know, getting screens, getting keyboards, um, at least in the legal profession before, you know, if we needed to get work done, we would just stay at the office as late as possible and get it done. And you bring your laptop home. But when you're doing it, 100% from home, the dynamic changes. I was fortunate enough to have started at the firm. So I had those relationships with my colleagues. Um, you know, we knew how to interact with one another. And, you know, I've understood the ways to get things done. I have some colleagues and they're doing a great job, but they started uh, after COVID began. So I'm sure it was a huge challenge for them just getting acclimated right from the, I can't even imagine just starting a job completely virtual. Um, and part of me worries that that may become the norm in the future, not in terms of us constantly working from home, but, um, you know, com companies have sort of found a way to do this, but I, I think the level of human interaction is really, really important. And I think, um, you know, especially people who are young in my age, I learned so much from just being in the office. And I think that's really important. I totally agree. Um, so I'm curious about two different things here. One is, and this is something that um, I hadn't thought about until you started going through that. If you have a bunch of rooms, let's say you're all attorneys um, or lawyers in the UK, uh, how do you do confidentiality? It, 
Oh. <laughs> you know, it's funny. This and this came up. This came, this came up a number of times. Um, this came up this morning, actually. Um, uh, you know, for example, this morning I had a I had a client call and it needed to be confidential. And you know, my girlfriend uh, is here, and I had to have her. You know, the thing is, even if the next room, the walls are so thin that she could probably still hear it. So I had to completely shift where I was to a point where to a to location where nobody could hear the confidential call. When I was with my roommates in that tight space, um, I would go to my bedroom, close the door, put headphones in um, and take the call there. Uh, and it's, it's tough. I, I, thankfully there weren't, I wasn't living with two other attorneys, but I can't imagine how all those confidential calls would go, you know, protecting our clients' confidentiality is of the utmost importance. Um, so I was, you know, lucky enough to have that ability, but I can imagine situations where it's a crowded apartment. Everybody needs to be on a call. There's not many places to go. It's, it's, it, that's definitely, that's definitely an adjustment you have to make. Yeah. No, I mean, no question. Goodness. You know, one of the really interesting factors of COVID is this whole working from home aspect and how that's translated into the courts. And when we first started, everything was adjourned, everything was postponed. But, you know, you can't postpone indefinitely litigations. People need uh, people need access to justice. People need access to the courts. Um, you know, one of the larger cases I'm working on, uh, we had in-person depositions scheduled before COVID. They were postponed to the, you know, nobody knew when this was going to be over. Right at the beginning, when we realized this isn't going to be over anytime soon. We had to conduct those depositions virtually. And it was my, you know, we had four or five depositions and they were my you know, first time ever doing a virtual deposition. And it definitely is completely different than conducting an in-person deposition. You know, when you're there questioning a witness, um, that's a, that's against you. There's an adversarial aspect to it. And it's, you know, it's difficult not being able to see a person's in-person reaction to the questions you ask and how they go about answering their questions. And, you know, there's definitely a thing, you know, called Zoom fatigue. Absolutely. You know, being on a camera for, you know, eight, nine hours under question, you start to lose focus, at least from the witness side. You know, the lawyers are there, they're attentive, but from the witness side, you lose focus. Those depositions you know, we used eventually in the same case, we had a trial and that trial was completely virtual. And this wasn't a small case. And that trial was just completely done over Zoom. Um, so, you know, you have your opening statements, you have your direct examinations, you have your cross examinations, you have to bring platforms in to display exhibits. You have to make sure everyone understands the technology beforehand. Um, you know, our trial went smoothly, but it, it's, you know, I think it's definitely a huge shift in what young attorneys think is the profession. You know, there, it, it, there's no more, you know, the standard courtroom scene, at least for now, where you walk in and you present your argument to a judge in person. You can see you pacing around, if you will, um, or walking up to the witness stand while you're direct examining or cross-examining. Um, that trial was, you know, go, 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 go on Zoom, pulling up documents in the middle, in the middle, uh, in the middle of the trial, um, you know, and it's not like you pull up a document from a folder and hand it to the partner. The partner is also on Zoom. So you have to get that document, email it to him. This is happening in real time. Yeah. And so that, that experience was, I'm so grateful 
because you know not many people can say they've done that and it's definitely a learning experience but it was a huge shift no it's definitely wild um and i know in the us texas was one of the first states to truly adopt that sort of zoom mentality and then you know a lot of a lot of other areas have done it since one of the things and i do mean this with respect to the industry um but i've always seen it as uh, court case, you're going in there, it's a bit of a performance, right? You want to make sure that everyone's in their best light, all of those things. How does that come to pass with people on cameras, with different types of technology, lighting on the individual, what they're wearing, what the background, like, are people thinking about that? Are there consultants now that are helping craft, you know, better picture? I think it's absolutely something need to be, people need to be thinking about. Um, there have been a number of cases throughout the country where people have appeared for court, not necessarily trials, but for motions, not wearing a suit. Um, and I think, you know, just because this is my personal opinion, but it also is the rule of, I would argue to say every court, um, whether Zoom or not, you need to dress the part. There's a level of, you know, we're lawyers, yes, but we're also, you know, there's a, part of the reason we dress the part is to show a respect to the court. You know, the reason that the, the judge wears a robe, you know, is a form of respect. And I think that's something everyone should absolutely be thinking about. Um, the, the, it's funny you say the lighting because, you know, I've been on, I've been on zoom court calls where, you know, someone was sitting and they had a window behind them and the sun was shining so brightly that we could not <laughs> see the person talking. Um, we thought it was a halo yeah. and you know, that's something to consider, you know, it's, that's not the worst, that's not the worst thing in the world, but I think dressing the part for some reason, some people have forgotten that, you know, just because you're sitting at home doesn't mean you dress the part, you know, it's, it's, I get it. We're not in court. So you may think it's more relaxed, but you have to remember that we're lawyers for a reason and we need to respect the judge, the person, our adversaries, uh, our adversaries, clients. Um, and we show that respect by dressing the part and showing them a level of formality that they deserve. So uh, I think it's something, you know, I, some people may listen to this and think, obviously that goes without saying, but you'd be surprised how many people have appeared up, have appeared on Zoom conferences not dressing the part. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's just these tiny little subtleties of, let's, let's imagine someone who has a, a poor mic. I mean, it's not coming in clear and you're like, everyone's like irked by it. And you're like, ah, and it's like, that almost is like a little bit of it doesn't mean anything in terms of the evidence, but it's like a knock in the back of the brain that says, ah, this person either isn't prepared or it's not set up properly. And you're just like, ah, of course, you're not supposed to let that influence you, but it subtly does. So yeah. I don't know. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we jumped right into it, but I yeah. would love to hear more about um, how you got where you are right now. Um, it sounded like you have an international background, which is awesome. Love to hear that perspective. Um, but how did you end up where you are right now today? Sure, sure. If you don't, I'll give you this sort of the 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 start to finish. Um, I uh, very fortunate, number one, to have grown up overseas. I was born in California, um, but I left when I was four. Uh, my father worked for uh, an international engineering company overseas. And so I grew up from the ages of four to 18 in Saudi Arabia, um, multiple parts of Saudi Arabia moving around. Uh, I went to an international high school with, you know, over 40 different nationalities. Um, so I, it, it was, you know, it was an incredible education. It was an incredible learning experience. Um, 
And I really, I think the benefit, one of the many benefits was just being able to understand, relate to, and get along with so many different backgrounds and cultures. Um, I went to Boston for undergrad. I went to Northeastern University. Uh, and one of the big motivations was you know, Boston's an incredibly diverse international city. And I wanted to sort of continue what I had experienced growing up um, into my college setting. Uh, on top of that, Northeastern has the co-op program, which is uh, instead of graduating in four years, you graduate in five years, but you do three full-time six-month internships. So by the time you graduate, you have a year and a half of full-time work experience, which, you know, for lack of a better word, makes you less green, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer before I even started college, but, you know, I wanted something uh, I wanted instead of majoring in the classics, which sometimes I go back and consider whether I should have done that. I wanted to do finance because I wanted to be, I knew I was going to be involved in some sort of law dealing with different uh, various financial documents and various financial statements. And I wanted to have an understanding of that entire world, uh, which is why I majored in finance. And then I also went to law school at Northeastern law. Um, wonderful experience. And I graduated, started at a New York firm, a mid-sized New York firm in litigation, uh, general commercial practice litigation, dealing with a number of matters from real estate, uh, a few white collar investigations. Um, after two years, I wanted to really expand my work in government investigations and larger litigations. Uh, and I made the transition to Thompson Hine, which is where I'm at now. And uh, it's been, you know, granted COVID, I've been working from home by come this March, I'll have worked from home for a year. Uh, the firm has been wonderful and it's been such an incredible experience, you know, thankfully, and I'm sure Thompson Hine isn't the only one, but we were able to figure out how to successfully work from home very, very quickly with very little hiccups. Um, you know, just from an IT perspective, uh, handling that from a server from from a server aspect is you know the fact that they were able to get it together so quickly is just wonderful um and you know litigation slowed down for a period because courts were closed uh but thankfully it's picked up and you know my white collar work has picked up and it's uh that's sort of my background that's my story i think i can maybe give you a little bit more detail um i guess the last nuance is i'm originally lebanese and most of my family still lives in lebanon today there is so much in there that uh, I would love to hear more about. So that's really unique uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, in terms of having these sort of like co-op programs uh, for like, I think it was it almost like six months on and then six months off. Yeah, absolutely. So it's six months. So you, my I did my first two years full time school and then six months on six months off. And, you know, the school has a number of when I say number, I mean, several hundred organizations and companies that they work with to place these students. And, but if you don't work with, you know, if you find a company that's outside of the network, if you will, uh, you can go ahead and try to, you know, work, uh, set up your own position. But, you know, the companies that we do work with, to them, it's a sort of full-time position. It's a full-time role that they just have a different individual rotating in, in and out every six months. Um, you know, Northeastern works with companies like TJ Maxx, um, uh, who, and they're a huge co-op employer and Bose as well. and they have engineering majors, they have finance majors, um, and constantly going in and out. Um, 
I went, so my, my internships were at Putnam Investments in Boston. Sure. Um, my second one, you know, I, I grew up overseas and I never sort of had that, uh, you know, small town American experience. And I really wanted to have that at the same time while getting more corporate finance experience. So I worked for a company called US Silica in Frederick, Maryland, a company huh. that just IP, I just had just IPO'd at the time. And, uh, you know, it was an incredible experience. I, I was about 45 minutes away from DC. So I lived out there and just being a part, you know, just being a part of that community, which is a very small community and getting to know everyone was a really educational eye-opening experience for me and i got to experience another culture that you know granted of all the different countries i got to experience i'm a u.s citizen i wanted to sort of understand more the people in this country and so that was wonderful and then my third one i wanted to do something more law oriented so i worked for a forensic accounting firm um that works with a number of law firms uh, in new york city so my all my three were in different locations um we're very much a Northeastern family. So my little brother also went to Northeastern and his co-ops, you know, he he's a chemical engineer. He worked for an oil company down in a forest in Ecuador um, for one of them. Then he worked uh, for uh, for another chemical plant in the in the south of Massachusetts. So he's uh, he's been all over. And now my little sister is also a Northeastern student and she oh did her first goodness. one at an architecture firm in Boston. And she just started an architecture firm here in New York uh, two days ago. Family discount? Uh, no, I wish they would. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call me on that. But uh, they've been Northeastern's wonderful. But uh, you know, it's the fact that you get these these real world full time experiences. It's just it's invaluable. You know, Northeastern isn't the only place to do it, but they they're the only I think one of the only places that really build it. I mean, I think two percent of Northeastern students do not do a co op. Oh wow! So everyone that goes there, it, you know, th- this is it's one of the biggest reasons you go to Northeastern is because you want this experience. You know, even if you, if you went to a four year undergrad, yes, you would still do internships, but when you start an internship, you know, most internships are two to three months and that's, that's great. That's fine. But having that additional three months, you really begin to dive in the substance, you know, the first month and a half, you're still getting acclimated. You're understanding things. And it's, you know, when you have years and years of experience, it's quicker to hit the ground running. But as a student, you don't have the benefit of just understanding how a workplace works. Um, and, uh, you know, by having those three additional months, I think it makes the world a difference. So that so after I went there and my little brother would love the experience I had, he went and then same thing with my little sister now. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So, but you can really see how things start to build towards law school. And they also have internships, I'm assuming, there too, right? Well, and so that's, that's, and that's the interesting part. Law school, Northeastern Law School also has the co-op program, but they keep it within the same, they keep it within three years as of any other law school, but you do four co-ops, three months each. And the way they're able to cram that in is because you pretty much lose every vacation you have, which is fine because you're in law school and that's expected of you. But so at law school, I also did, you know, four internships, um, the Federal Reserve, uh, the SEC in DC, which was an incredible experience. Um, I worked, uh, I did immigration work at a big firm in Boston. And then at the firm I started my uh, first job with, did my final internship there. That's, I mean, that really is amazing. All of those different pieces start to come together. 
it's annoying from a resume perspective because no one my age really should have a resume longer than one page, but I have seven internships I have to try to fit in there. So I have to be very selective. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So if you're able to, it sounds like you've been able to sort of parlay all of those experiences, all the co-op, obviously all the education. Uh, when you were going through that, I was thinking like, yeah, I went the uh, liberal arts route. And so what does that really help me with? And that definitely helps me with uh, Jeopardy. Uh, so I can <laughs> go down that road pretty well. Uh, and of course, the technology components, but still, I really love your background here. So how well, is that? You'd be, you'd be you'd be surprised, though. I mean, part of me always. So you were just so correct me. You were saying you went the liberal arts route, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I like I, I think I would disagree with you because I really do find it very helpful. I mean, the reason I said I wish I'd done the classics, uh, you know, finance is wonderful and it really prepared me. But part of me also, so I'm, I'm a litigator. And part of that is I write constantly, almost every single day, you know, motions, briefs, oppositions. Um, and having that liberal arts background really, one, you know, this is, this is a very simple example, but building your vocabulary, becoming persuasive, learning how to become a better writer is all part of a classics education. Um, whether it's ancient Greek, whether it's English, whether it's a foreign language, you really learn how to express yourself less so than you would in finance, of course. So, you know, granted, I don't regret my route, but I have tremendous respect for people who went through a liberal arts education because they just they can be incredibly persuasive. And I've seen it firsthand. They're brilliant writers. Really interesting. So I've gone back and forth about this. I can't tell you how many different times with people. Um, like the school, some of the schools that I went to, I feel very fortunate I went to, but we spent time on Latin. So we actually had to study Latin, be able to translate and speak it. And then some people went down the road of Greek. Um, and then of course, everything else in between. But fundamentally, when I step away from that, and I still think it's, it's wonderful to have because I can listen to things, I can understand things, hopefully, uh, maybe from a different perspective. But the day-to-day -day that I see, the day-to-day -day that I interact with um, from work, I know it does help. Um, it's, sometimes it, it falls down onto to nuts and bolts of uh, what's going on in the financial industry. How are people dealing with, and it's more and more you're see, seeing it, um, the, clip, the critical analysis of, of numbers, of computer science, of understanding algorithms. Um, and I know it depends on the industry that you're in, but it seems like people are taking a step back from this idea of liberal arts being important and moving much more and even thinking about colleges or universities going away in the way that they, we see them and moving in the direction of what you actually went through. So that the co-ops and hard understanding and tangible experiences. Um, so I don't know, I go back and forth about that a lot. I mean, I, I agree with you, but at least, you know, just from a legal perspective, I would you know, someone who's 18 or 17 going into college, knowing that they want to become a lawyer, I would probably advise them to get something in the classics just because at the end of the day, it's going to teach them to become an incredible, incredible writer. Now, that's if they want to become a litigator, for example. I mean, granted, it goes both ways. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting thought. And I don't there's no right answer or wrong answer. You know, at the end of the day, people will train themselves and they'll learn just like I have. Um, but it's definitely an interesting thought where the world is shifting. So I'm really curious about this and your perspective on it. Um, as newer lawyers 
come out of uh, law school. Do you think it's going to be more important that they, uh, to your point, really understand the languages, which is always going to be very important, but now open their, their eyes to just different fields along the lines of, of uh, math or um, comp even computer science or even coding. Do you think that that's something that people should be thinking about a little bit more than they had even five years ago? Absolutely. I mean, you know, as a, I'll give you an example, uh, as a litigator, you know, you deal with, you, do, you know, the companies represent, each company is different. It's not like I only represent companies that are real estate companies, you know, I, I've represented, I've worked on litigations with large pharmaceutical companies and trying to understand the biochemistry of the products they make, uh, comes into play when you're conducting a deposition. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have any science background, really. I think I took physics in, uh, in college. Um, <laughs> so, you know, someone who is a biology or biochemistry major in my role would understand, you know, of course, you ha I have to learn and I have to sort of dive in and sort of figure out at least, you know, on a, uh, some basic understanding of the science behind these cases, you know, dealing with a finance case, dealing with derivatives. You know, I haven't worked in derivatives before, so I have to sort of figure that out as well. So I think to answer your question, absolutely. I think, I don't think one can necessarily prepare completely because, you know, when you're in college, you don't know what type of lawyer you're going to become. You don't know what type of cases you're going to work on. Um, but having somewhat of a background, you know, if you wanted to work, if you wanted to be a patent lawyer, um, working, you know, with pharmaceutical companies, then absolutely, yes, work, you know, major in biology, major in something that you'll, that'll help you grow as a lawyer and understand the clients you work with. And it also just makes you much more marketable, you know, being able to converse with your client about the product he makes um, on more than a, you know, a very basic understanding, but being able to really dive in and ask questions. I think it's something young attorneys should consider or young students looking to become attorneys should consider. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I'm um, thinking about the Dairy Girls. Have you seen that show on Netflix? The, which, say that again? Uh, Dairy Girls. I have not. I have not. So, I'll add it to my list. Yeah, you should. It's funny because they're basically uh, a bunch of young women um, going through kind of like this private school education, probably learning the liberal arts um, in high school. And they're, trying to figure out what's next for them. They get in all sorts of, of trouble. Um, it's set in Northern Ireland uh, during the, I think the 80s, 90s, or I'm not sure what decade that is, but I believe it's, that's, the, that's the time frame. Um, but yeah, they'll need to think about their futures too in terms of what they're focusing <laughs> on. But um, so more, more practically, um, are you still working on sort of like financial crimes at all? Yes, yes. Um, and that's sort of part of why I wanted to shift to this current firm I'm at. Uh, just because I knew that would, you know, I do a lot more work on that. And, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. The work, uh, at least for me, I've already seen an uptick um, with this new administration coming in. You know, there have been articles that have predicted an increase in white collar crime prosecutions. And um, I see that very much becoming a reality. Uh, and I think over the next year, you're going to see a lot, you know, a very much large increase in the prosecutions the Department of Justice brings um, against these financial matters. I think it was uh, still a priority, but not not as heavily pursued over the last four years. And I think that's gonna change, um, I don't wanna say dramatically, but I think it's definitely gonna change. Then you know, at least we're gonna start seeing evidence of it in the next six months, more in the next year. 
and I, I definitely agree with you on that, uh, based on the, the sort of showing of the cards that we've seen from the upcoming administration uh, in terms of what they're they're probably going to do. So if I start thinking about like financial crimes, um, why does it seem like it's easy to start sort of a wicked empire? Because it does seem, from my vantage point, and I'll tell you a few, a few things if, if it's helpful, I have certainly not done this, but I can see based on some of the work that I've done in technology, that start, starting one of these wicked empires is not that difficult. From from your vantage point, does it seem like um, maybe the way that things are set up that we make it too easy for criminals who want to uh, do really bad things, but they can they can do it a little bit easier than maybe just obviously something more simplistic? It's a very interesting thought. I don't think we make it easy. <laughs> I was talking to my mom about this yesterday, and you know, forgive forgive the. Uh, Forgive the lack of uh, analysis here. I guess if you will, when I was a child, when I was a child, I used to, uh, you know, I used to, very strange. I used to, I guess my mom sort of hammered this into me. And when I say child, I mean, you know, under five years old. I used to walk around and say, "There's a lot of bad people out there. You have to have conscience." That's what I used to say. <laughs> so I guess my mom succeeded in like inserting a Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder. Um, <laughs> but I think. Uh, I don't think we make it easy. I think, yes, I think that if the intent is there, people will find a way at the end of the day. I, you know, there can always be more laws, if you will, and people can pass more laws. But at the same time, you know, there's an issue of uh, a level of oversight that may be unconstitutional. So uh, I think it's catching. I think the issue is catching them before, uh, you know, as soon as they begin and finding that intent early on is how we prevent sort of to use your words the wicked empire but i think at the end of the day if people want to start something evil wrong illegal pick any word you like it's going to be hard to stop them because people will always find a way to achieve the level of criminality they want to achieve um you know to quote myself there's a lot of bad people out there <laughs> um you know i think of i think of bernie madoff for example, yeah. who, you know, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm no expert, of course, but, you know, he was able to get away with something for so, so long. And I think if we had known really where to look, that could have, you know, wouldn't have been, you know, we would have stopped it decades earlier. So I don't think it's a matter of it's too easy per se, but because again, you don't want, you want to encourage innovation. You want to encourage growth. And the issue I have with too much oversight and too many restrictions that that may dissuade um, innovating and growing our country and develop and finding you know new and prosperous ideas. So I think it's just having added checks and balances in place to cat and look and looking for certain red flags uh, to catch different levels of criminality. Through my lens, my tiny little lens, for some reason i always associate not always i generally associate um financial crimes with uh, clearly you have the, the bernie madoff um scandals we've had in the past um ponzi schemes of course which he perpetuated but i always make this direct correlation to technology so people taking advantage of technology that maybe not everyone understands quite yet and so the criminals go about either learning it leveraging it using it for the bad guys uh, and then and then we're like trying to catch up to that. We're trying to figure out, it might be 
people hear me talk about this too much, but the cryptocurrencies and the digital wallets that are out there right now. And I know that the US government, as well as governments around the world, the UK, they're all looking at how do we handle this? I mean, you're talking about a, a, a digital wallet uh, address as being almost like your new email address. Is this something that we should all be aware of and, and directly align the individual to that particular set of numbers and letters that distinguishes it as that? Um, or should it all be anonymous? I mean, if you want to pass off money or whatever the case is, uh, other assets, um, can we do that with ease? Should we be able to do that with ease? And those are the types of things I think a lot of government agencies are trying to figure out right now. Um, any thoughts on that? I think it's a really interesting question. It's, you know, I'm not, you, I know you have a, an affinity or you, you really, <laughs> not, not affinity, sorry, affinity is the wrong word, but I, I know you're really interested in this topic. Passionate. Um, <laughs> passionate about it. Um, I don't know much, you know, I, I know what I need to know, but I'm not an expert in Bitcoin or mining by any means, but something I will say is that you asked a very critical question is how do we go about regulating this? Um, you know, from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong here, Bitcoin was founded to be anonymous, you know, to, 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 to have an unregulated system in place where people can transfer and send money to each other without oversight. Um, now that has a lot of, benefits and it has a lot of problems the the one of the issues i'm thinking of right now i just saw an article a couple days ago where an individual in california has over 200 million dollars in bitcoin but he doesn't remember his password and he has two two chances left or he's else he's locked two chances left to input the correct password or else he's locked out of his bitcoin forever now you know if that was held at a bank of america account for example you could just do a forgot password um but he can't do that here. So that's one of the issues. Another huge issue is the dark web. And again, I'm not incredibly well versed on this, but Bitcoin has been used to pay for a number of legal activities ranging from buying drugs, trafficking arms, human trafficking. So how do you prevent, if you can't track it and if you can't trace it, and if that becomes the method of funding terrorism, for example, that's something that needs oversight. And that's something that needs regulation. But I get the I get the problem with that, because it's going against the very thing it was founded on, which is no regulation and no oversight. So it's a it's a tricky question. I know there are a number of government, you know, several government agencies are looking at this. But in terms of how you go about regulating it, you know, will people the question is, will people stop using Bitcoin if they know that the government is regulating it? Well, you know, Bitcoin's price is so volatile. I remember in 2017 when it jumped up to 20,000, everyone was excited and then jumped down. Whether it's a bubble or not, I won't say. But I think I think, you know, you might see. A, a steep drop in price if a large form of oversight or regulation is added to it. It is. I mean, it's it's a fascinating area. There's so many things that have happened even over the last uh, 12 months in this space uh, that touch on almost the financial crimes area, um, but definitely in, in so many different components as it, it touches the legal industry, period. Um, yeah. So yeah, Bitcoin you're right, is like pseudo-anonymous. So that if you are able to look at the address and then tie that to an email address or something like that you can actually track and should be track trackable or traceable for almost anything that's out there um yeah, but you know you're starting to see um governments around the world coming up with their own digital currency so like in the us you'll see a digital dollar you'll see a digital pound probably the next several years 
Um, and then, you know, we'll start to see all the stuff propagate, but it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, and they say, yeah. And they say that I think 1% of all that sort of digital currency that's out there. And there are, I, I dare say eight to 9,000 different digital currencies at this point, um, is all for the, the, the dark web stuff. Uh, so it's still a problem and it's still something that we all need to be aware of and think about, but thankfully, thankfully, a lot of it is moving in a positive direction. Um, Here's one thing that I'll, one of the last questions maybe I'll throw out there because I'm very curious to hear your perspective on it. So one of the new areas that's starting to take off that definitely has an impact um, in the legal world is what they're calling decentralized finance. And have you heard about this part? This part? I have not. I have not. Enlighten me. So no, no, no. So imagine, imagine like um, all of these. Uh, there's like a, a cryptocurrency that may come out and. You have the ability to set up using smart contracts, the ability to have um, your money, let's say you have $10,000 uh, or pounds or whatever the case is, locked into this, this digital wallet um, that's on the blockchain, it's secure, it's safe, but you can earn interest on that because it's just sitting there because you're then leveraging that money that's there to be able to, to lend it out to somebody else. And instead of the one or 2% that you might find internationally for interest on that, they're now giving 20, 30, 40, 100% interest return on that over the course of a year annualized. Um, and so it's it's pushing this thing. So now Bitcoin, believe it or not, at this point is at $40,000. Wow. Uh, the second biggest one out there, Ethereum, which is really the sort of bedrock uh, going forward in terms of all these things and how the legal industry is going to start to play around with it, um, is at like, I don't know, $1,200 a coin or whatever the case is. But all of these things are going to definitely, in my personal opinion, filter into the legal industry for almost almost every single practice area. I think we'll probably have to touch this uh, the next several years. But you guys in the financial crimes will definitely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, there are already instances in the United States where people are, you know, putting down payments on their homes with Bitcoin. Um, yeah. And so how does it, you know, so I just went through the home buying process myself just a couple months oh. ago. And thank you. I appreciate it. But in terms of the documents I had to provide, you know, I went through a large U.S. stable institution uh, for my mortgage. But in terms of the, doc you know, I had to provide all, you know, all my assets, all my financial statements to get a mortgage. How do you do that with Bitcoin? I mean, how do you how do you trade is it with, with the level and uh, with with its anonymous factor? How do you go about tracing everything? How is a bank going to accept, you know, I received this Bitcoin from this person. You know, if I, you know, if you had an inheritance, for example, you have to show where that inheritance came from. How do you show where the Bitcoin came from? So it's, uh, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, if it, but I think it's gonna really come into play. As you said, to every industry, I think litigation, absolutely. Financial crimes, absolutely. I think with corporate, you know, it runs the gamut, of course. Um, trust and estates. How do you, you know, how do you make a will with someone who has Bitcoin? You know, does it automatically transfer? You know, who has the passwords? I think all these things will come into play. Oh, totally. No, you're absolutely right about that. My goodness. Yeah, there's so much going on. I think actually it's, it's going to be, from my vantage point, a boon to the legal industry. All of these things, all the other technologies that are coming around um, 
and you are really well positioned with all of your, your, your components of your background that really <laughs> align well with all of this. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, you know, it's funny. There's, I think the biggest, you know, that's definitely going to be a boom. I think the biggest boom we're about to see, though, at least from a litigation perspective, is uh, the COVID-19 you know, litigation boom. You know, there's a, there's a lot of set, you know, dozens of contracts, hundreds of contracts throughout the countries, throughout the country were canceled due to COVID. People were not able to perform. People were not able to um, ship goods that were demanded. And, you know, most contract, you know, several contracts have forced majeure provisions, which is, you know, translates into act of God. So how do you go about, you know, I think the litigation that's going to come up in regards to COVID-19 prevented us from, you know, completing or performing, uh, we've already seen several dozen litigations. And I think most lawyers are going to be very busy in the coming months going about litigating these things. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, bankruptcy alone. I mean, there's so many different facets Absolutely. to this. You know, if you look at New York and so, you know, restaurants, dozens, dozens, hundreds of restaurants have shut down. You know, not, you know, mom and pop shops, you know, granted they have shut down too, but, you know, institutional restaurants that have been around for years have shut down because of COVID. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And the lawsuits and the bankruptcy that follows that is going to be really interesting to follow. Man. Well, there's no better time to be in the industry, I don't think. Um, Kareem, <laughs> thank you Absolutely. so much for sharing your wisdom, your thoughts, uh, your perspective on everything. We really appreciated you joining us today. It's been my pleasure. I hope I was helpful. I hope I gave some sort of enlightenment. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. Please join me for our exciting upcoming episodes where amazing people and their remarkable stories meet the cross-section of the law and technology. If you would like, please give us a rating. Feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz. That's J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing. Or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.